This episode of Dear Journalist discusses stories about sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. No one is ever going to come and tell you that you've done too much and you need a break. That never happens. There's always more to be done. The TV media never gets full. It's always hungry. Welcome to Dear Journalist. This is a show where we talk with longtime Canadian journalists about their careers. They'll share with us some of the lessons they've learned from their years in the field. I'm Yasuo Ho. I'm Christina Appa. And I'm Hannah Mercanti. For this episode, I spoke with Kevin O'Keefe, an award-winning reporter and producer at CTV's W5, known for his current affairs television, investigative work, and documentary filmmaking. We want to get right to that, so make sure you stick around after because we're going to come back and chat more about what we heard. Here's Hannah's interview with Kevin O'Keefe on Dear Journalist. Hello, Kevin, and thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Just to get us started, could you just tell me what initially made you interested in investigative work and how you got started in the field? Wow. How long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think we were just talking before we started rolling about daily news, and I've actually never worked in daily news. It's my secret. And I think think the thing that really got me interested, and we all see these headlines, we see the news go by— And a lot of them go, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why is this guy so opposed to this? Or why is this woman so interested in that? Like, to me, that's what I want to know more about. Mm -hmm. I get the headlines, and I have a lot of colleagues that work in daily news, and they do amazing work. But I always say, that doesn't really add up to me. Like, what else is going on there? So I think that's kind of that first where I got that first spark, I guess, to to dig a little deeper. And then once I started working in more investigative stories, just like building those relationships with people, you become part of their lives. I think we're so lucky in this industry to get a license. Like I would never in my life ask these kinds of questions to people. Uh, You know, tell me about the day you were attacked or how did it feel when your baby died or whatever, like these really deep personal stories. And I think people, for whatever reason, I think everybody wants to be heard. That's what I've come away after 30 years. And just giving them a platform to be heard, I think not only can help us, the audience, but them getting their voice out there and tell their story. So I feel, yeah, so I feel incredibly privileged to be the person, the conduit to be able to give people a voice and and have their story be heard. So a lot of the work that you've done in documentaries deals with kind of like sensitive topics or marginalized groups like the one on the women abused in the Catholic Church or the first openly gay um, Roman Catholic priest. So how do you kind of keep that reporting ethical and veer away from like parachute journalism or stuff like that? How do you kind of build that relationship with the sources? Yeah, like, those are two great examples. Thank you for asking. Um, it took me uh, the gay Roman Catholic. I mean, I'm Roman Catholic. I'm gay. Um <laughs> So it was, and I actually had a friend once who had a brunch. This is a true story. And it was about 10 gay men sitting at brunch, and not one of them could name a Roman Catholic priest they knew who was not gay. (laughs) What about Father McNeil? No, he's gay. (laughs) What about Father? No, he's gay. (laughs) So I just, again, I guess it's it's definitely a topic I was very comfortable with for a whole host of reasons. I was lucky enough to work at Vision TV at the time, which was very open, gay positive organization, really interested in the story. And it took a year. And this is, again, you asked me at the beginning about why I like investigative work. 
of re- building a relationship with that priest before he would come out. So he was the first openly Roman Catholic priest in Canada to come out and say he was gay, and most of the priests he knew were gay. Um, so, so yeah, it was a year-long conversation working with him. And let's be honest, he had his ducks in a row. So he had retired. He had his pension. He had his health benefits. So he made sure he knew there would be a huge backlash when Mm -hmm. he came out. So we worked with him to make sure he had all his ducks in a row that, you know, there would be a huge backlash, but he would be safe and well taken care of. He had transitioned to a different I won't get into the details, but a different form of the Roman Catholic Church. So he had a congregation that was opening. So, you know. All these things were put in place, so I wasn't going to come in and just destroy his life and disappear. And then it was through a story I had done on the ordination of women in the Roman Catholic Church. Again, another very controversial story. And I asked one of the women why this was so important to you to have, you know, because the church only ordains men. And she says, well, because I was sexually abused by a priest, and it's hard for me to go to a priest for a marriage, for a confession, for a baptism, all the sacraments in the church— knowing that a man in robes doing these things sexually abused me. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of that. And then after talking to a number of women and a number of experts, I realized, and this is a fact, again, not a lot of people we talk about daily news know about, um, more Roman Catholic priests abuse women than little boys. I'll say it again. More Roman Catholic priests abuse women and girls than little boys, but nobody knows and nobody cares. And again, the abuse of little boys by Roman Catholic priests is a horrible, tragic thing that's happened, and it deserved to be exposed. But what I discovered and what really fascinated me was, number one, they say, oh, thank God it was a woman (laughs) and not a little boy. Mm -hmm. And number two, um, well, it's it's the woman's fault. So immediately blame the woman. And she somehow seduced the priest, and it was her tempting the priest and the poor priest. And again, that took months and months of trust building with the women to feel comfortable coming out. I talked with uh, Enza, supermodel Anderson, and uh, she really got her... St- I asked her why she's so interested in drag, and it came from serving in the church, being an altar boy. Mm-hmm. And it was her first time she could wear vestments, and be in drag, and she also said, like, be elevated, like, be so um, superior to the people around her. And I think for a lot of Roman Catholics, young men um, questioning their sexuality, you don't have a lot of options back in the day, and you could take on a role where you're going to be seen to be above the local population, where you don't have to have sex with women. Mm-hmm. So it kind of solves a lot of your problems. So, yeah, it really struck me when a friend of mine said that everyone at the brunch knew, couldn't think of a priest that wasn't gay. Um, and even it got to the point where he ran a bed and breakfast and the bishop was gay. And if he knew two of the priests were having a relationship, they could have a weekend away at his bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. Like it was this whole subculture of like, gay like a priest set up thing yeah so yeah especially with like to answer your question like both those stories you have to really work hard to build trust with mm-hmm. these people it's not an overnight thing you're going to get a lot of no's we get a lot of no's in this industry uh and they both said no initially both the people i profiled in those stories okay think about it 
I'll call you back in a month, you know, call them back. How's it going? How are things going? So you do really, I mean, you know, with all due respect, like they're trusting you with their story that maybe they haven't told their immediate family. Mm-hmm. I will tell you one of the really nice things that came out of that was after I did the story on the women who were abused, I got a letter from somebody who said, I was I was abused um, and I haven't told anyone. And I just ordered a copy of her documentary. I'm going to show that to them and then I'm going to come out to them because no one believes me and no one understands why it's taken me so long to tell. But the women in your story explain so clearly why they kept it a secret for so long and how difficult it is to come forward and destroy everybody's not only you know, they got accepted, their child was abused by the one man that they trusted. And now this, what does this mean for their faith? And like, it just, it's an atomic bomb in the whole family's life. Mm-hmm. So that made it worthwhile. And a lot of these kind of stories or investigative work can be very hard on your mental health. It can be stories where people have experienced a lot of trauma. So how do you kind of protect your own mental health when you're entrenched in a bunch of stories that are really traumatic for you to just listen to? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, <clears throat> and it's becoming more and more important. I think I think you have to know when to say no, and that's really hard when you're starting out and you're given an assignment um, that you know makes you feel really uncomfortable, either as a woman or a gay person or a person of color or a trans person, and you're told to do this thing <laughs> that's going to really affect you i think i think in some ways i think your boss would have more respect for you if you can say to him you know i've thought about this assignment and i thought about my mental health and i think that's a bit much for me right now if it's okay i'd like to pass on that one but i'm happy to do this one and this one so i think saying no is really important there's never no one is ever going to come and tell you that you've done too much and you need a break That never happens. There's always more to be done. The TV media never gets full. It's always hungry. So if you think there's going to be a time when your boss comes to you and says, you know, Hannah, you've done so much work this week. I think you deserve some time off. (laughs) It's not going to happen. A good boss, but even a good boss wouldn't say that. I mean, Rita Devereaux, when I was at Vision, I worked so much I didn't have time to water my plants. And everyone who knows me knows my plants are really important. So they all died. So our code word was like, Rita, I just need to go home and water my plants. And she would say, Kevin, go home and water your plants. <laughs> and that was her code for, I just need a couple of days off. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, that's important. But it can be, like you said, it can be hard when you're like just starting out and trying to make a name for yourself. And yeah, yeah but, but if, like I've been boss to people. If I had, and I have said this like at W5, I said, I don't think I can do that story. I don't think I can go undercover to a gay conversion therapy camp. Yeah, that, that I, I don't know if I could do boss, that either. Like, I don't think I can. I did go to the conference, and that was really hard. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I just said, you know what? I can't go to this camp. <laughs> like, yeah. So we hired an actor, and they went. So the story still got done. I still worked the story. I still contributed. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, knock on wood, like I think my boss respected that. I just said, you know, from a mental health point of view, I don't think that's a good decision for me. And he said, okay, no problem. Mm-hmm. So I, 
I think I know it's hard when you're starting out, or it's hard even for me. But I think uh, you showing that you're on top of your mental and physical health is actually, I think, your boss would respect you more, mm-hmm. not less. Yeah, and you've mentioned this is like the only industry you know. You've been doing journalism for quite a while now. So what is kind of the most valuable lesson you would say that you've learned since you started after graduating in 1992? Like my first job was at Vision TV uh, with Rita Deverell, who I'm still very close with, who's still my mentor. And I'll never forget, I mean, God, I, and I, I was talking to someone about this this morning, and I learned this like 35 years ago. I had my first job interview with her, and she said, well, how do you think you did this year? And I said, well, I don't think I made a lot of mistakes. And she said, Kevin, <laughs> anyone who knows Rita's Kevin, the way she talks, <laughs> never say that. <laughs> and I was like, why? And she said, that's the only way you're going to learn. That was my conversation with Kevin. Yeshua, Christina, what did you take away from it? Say so That was a really good interview with Kevin. And one of the things I appreciate is that throughout this podcast series, we talked about knowing when to take a break from when you're working on a story, knowing when to shut down that laptop screen and just doing something else in the meantime. But we never really discussed knowing when to say no and knowing where your boundaries lie as a journalist. And that just because you could do something that can elevate your story doesn't mean you have to. Like Kevin discussed um, choosing not to participate or act in that uh, gay conversion therapy camp just because he didn't want to. And it's very important to know that as journalists, you don't have to do everything just for the sake of your story. And that's very hard to um, learn because like when you first start journalism, your whole responsibility is to basically find that story and making sure it's the best possible story you can write. But we don't really consider what those decisions will, how, how, those, how those decisions will affect us after and whether or not the toll and what and the toll that takes on our well-being afterwards and stuff. yeah it's like do the ends justify the means mm-hmm. kind of thing like i'm also a gay journalist and i don't know if i would be able to put myself in a conversion camp for a story like ser- like i really don't think i could do that and like back in our first episode with um kevin newman when he was talking about how sometimes like they put the newer reporters to like you know go knock on someone's door and get photos of the dead person like you have to do whatever it takes to get the story and blah, 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 blah. Like that isn't necessarily true all the time. Like just mm-hmm. because something will make your story really good or could make for an interesting piece, like doesn't mean you have to do it. Like just, just because you can doesn't mean you should. The ends don't always justify the means. Someone else can take it on, you know? And that idea that like no one's going to come up to you and say like, you've done too much work, especially right. in a career like this where we're freelancing and so much of it is just like done at home. No one is going to tell you to stop doing extra work. So you need to be able to do that for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I also really loved how he kind of gave advice to young journalists as well by saying, like, you can say no if you want. I Because I think especially when I was in first and second year, I felt like I had to do everything and uh, be a part of so many things um, in order to kind of get my foot in the door and to, like, um, be be seen as an established journalist, but I don't think that's necessarily what you have to do because at the end of the day, you have to also focus on your well-being and your mental health. Um, 
And I also really loved how he talked about using code words. So for an example, he talked about like he has, I think it was his friend or a colleague where he was like, if I'm not feeling well, I'll be like, I have to go water my plants. And that's a way to take a break. Because although you shouldn't be embarrassed to um, want to take a break, I think sometimes you don't want everyone to know all of your business. right? right? Like it doesn't matter if it's not about being embarrassed, but like sometimes you don't want to stand up in an office full of like half strangers being like, I'm stressed. Yeah. I'm having anxiety. I'm having depression. Like that's a little much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit ironic because we do everything we can as journalists to make sure our sources are well account or uh, how do you say it? Well accommodated for. We make sure they're okay, but sometimes we just forget about ourselves in that moment and not consider that like, hey, maybe I shouldn't spend like another hour at like after 2 a.m. working on this story. And sometimes I should take a nap or something like that. And um, he also met like, and it's like, and I just realized something too as I listened to your interview. The word no does only apply to sources. Journalists also yeah. have that, should also have the opportunity to say no at any given point in terms of their story. And knowing that just because you could do something doesn't mean, I mean, if you can do something, but it makes you uncomfortable, you should be given the ability to say no at any point. This has been Dear Journalist for the Review of Journalism. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, check out Reviewed. It's a celebration of 40 years of the Review of Journalism, with conversations from feature writers and emerging journalists. Make sure that you also pick up a copy of the 40th anniversary issue of the Review of Journalism, available on newsstands across Canada in April 2024. You can head to reviewofjournalism.ca to find out more. For extra online content, you can also connect with the review on X and TikTok. Until next time, I'm Yezua Ho. I'm Hannah Mercanti. And I'm Christina Appa. Thank you again to Kevin O'Keefe for talking with us. And thank you, dear journalist, for listening. <laughs>